Alrighty. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 is our text this morning. John chapter 3. The visit by Nicodemus. And the gospel message contained here in this chapter. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we ask for your hand of blessing upon us this morning as we study to show ourselves approved. And Father, I pray that the eyes of our understanding would be opened, that we might understand not only the the content of what is taught, but Father, its meaning and purpose and application for our lives on a daily basis. Father, do not allow us to accumulate knowledge and simply um, build up knowledge absent love, Father, and become the, the clanging gongs and the, uh, the uh, useless uh, presentation of truth that, that uh, a lack of love would communicate. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, it didn't take the Pharisees very long to send their minions and to send their agents uh, to investigate who Jesus Christ was. It was something that we observed back in chapter 1 when John the Baptist began to minister, when John the Baptist began to preach. As you turn back to chapter 1 and you recognize uh, from verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you have to say about yourself? And so we recognize the interest that the religious leaders had in those that were uh, preaching without a license, we might say. Those who were preaching apart from their control, their influence, their schools, their structure, their system. Again, verse 24 makes this clear as well in chapter 1. They had been sent from the Pharisees. So when we, uh, and then they themselves would come out and he calls them a brood of vipers and the things that happen here in chapter 1. So returning to chapter 3 now, we recognize that such was the impact of his deeds, the undeniable miracles, that rather than sending lackeys and minions and agents and others to investigate, that Nicodemus himself, being one of their rulers, goes out to investigate. And uh, we see this presented here in these chapters, or in this chapter. The first point of study, there's nine observations I'm going to give you out of this uh, event. The first of which, a Pharisee and Jewish ruler named Nicodemus came to Christ and received the greatest gospel message in the entire Bible. Nicodemus is not saved at this point, as indicated by the Lord's message to him that he needs to be born again, that having a natural understanding is not sufficient, that he needs to understand the gospel, he needs to understand the provision for regeneration, that he is still unregenerate, he is still looking at things with the finite understanding of earthly understanding. He says, unless one is born, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
unless one is born again in verse 3. And the, uh, the application that is not just general to the world, but specific to Nicodemus, hits him here in verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So there's a general message that's a universal truth worldwide, and we can understand that and accept that and teach that here in chapter 3. But there's also a particular message that's directed to Nicodemus, the person who himself doesn't matter all the knowledge that he has, doesn't matter the degrees that he has or the standing that he has or the, the fact that he, in fact, is a Bible teacher. And I don't know if that bothers some of us when we read through these passages and we find unbelievers as Bible teachers. That shouldn't surprise us because that's the case today in terms of pastors and churches and teachers and scholars and scribes and some of the best linguists and historians and scholars that I will refer to in my study and my library and so forth are unbelievers. When it comes down to it, they don't accept that God wrote the Bible. They don't accept that Jesus Christ died for their sins. But there are some incredible linguists and scholars that have written on uh, biblical subjects, and we use them all the time in our research and study and so forth. So I don't know why that uh, surprises us, but Nicodemus here needs to be saved. And uh, the application of it, I believe, comes to fruition because he comes after the crucifixion along with Joseph of Arimathea and buries the body of the Lord and and so forth. We uh, started to give some information on this in last week's lesson under subpoints A, B, and C. Information on the Pharisees under point A, the name Nicodemus under point B, which really, I think, encapsulates the whole work of the Pharisees anyway, is to rule the people, to control the people. And uh, Nicodemus, the, the, the nikao is the verb to conquer, to have victory. Uh, Nike was the Greek goddess of, of victory, for example. Uh, sometimes we call her Nike, but Nike. Uh, Nikos is the noun, demos, for the people. When you think of democracy, you have demos. And so here is victory over the people, conqueror of the people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were in controlling the uh, understanding of what the law was all about. See? And, um, you know, the law said what it said, and Moses wrote it, and it, you would think that it could speak for itself after 1,400 years. But in reality, it didn't speak for itself because the Pharisees had seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And we'll deal with some of that in upcoming classes when the Lord will rebuke them and address how they had usurped the role of Moses, as Moses was a lawgiver, they are law interpreters. And they had put themselves into that position of authority where people were coming to them to interpret what Moses, uh, what Moses meant when he wrote the things that he wrote. So we'll deal with some of these things. Under point C, a ruler of the Jews, not only a Pharisee, but a voting member of the Sanhedrin. Have you not been looking at a screen the whole time? Well, thank you for only wasting nine minutes. Appreciate that. All right, let's uh, flip this over. All right. Not only a ruler of the Jews, not only a Pharisee, but a voting member of the Sanhedrin in recognizing that the, um, the Romans, for the most part, would allow local control over things that they weren't really worked up about. You know, they wanted to conquer. They conquered regions. They held territory. They fixed borders in terms of a frontier to protect the Roman Empire. And so long as the borders were, were secure, so long as the taxes were paid, so long as the peace was kept, they would allow individual regions to take care of themselves, so to, so to speak. They would allow the Jews to have their religion, to 
worship in their temple, to do their sacrifices and things, that's fine. The Romans didn't care. The Jews could do that so long as the borders were secure, the, the order was kept, the peace was maintained, and taxes were paid to Caesar. See, they would allow Egypt to function in their religion, in their temples, along their thing, as long as the border was secure, the peace was maintained, the taxes were paid. See, in the case of Egypt, so long as the grain kept coming to Rome, because <laughs> the fertile Nile uh, Valley, Egypt was really the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Had it not been for Egypt, Rome couldn't have fed as many people as they fed. So as long as the grain uh, ships kept going from Egypt to Rome, the Egyptians could kind of, you know, do what they wanted to do, their priesthood, their temples, and so forth. Uh, don't rock the boat, so to speak. And that was the, that was the philosophy in England and Spain and on, along the fringes of the Roman frontier. They didn't care, see, about the local matters, the religious matters. They would leave that in the hands of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was very much in favor of such a thing <laughs> because it meant that they were in power. It meant that they could control the things that they controlled locally, and if the Romans didn't bother them, they wouldn't bother the Romans and so forth. So it kind of worked out as a as an interesting alliance. I uh, mentioned last week that Grace Notes has an article on the Pharisees, and I recommended that to you. Um, I was going to, in fact, take you to the Grace Notes page this morning and show you where it is, but if you're familiar with Grace Notes, you can find it yourself and find the uh, the article that's there. Uh, I also went ahead and put it into a, a Libronics book, and we're going to find a way to post those on the website as well for those with the Logos Bible software, and, and you want to have it as a Libronics book as well. And there's advantages to having it there as, as opposed to just simply browsing from the website and saving it as a Word document and so forth. But you can read through the article on the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, and... Uh, Excellent material that's available here. And not only can you read through the material, but uh, as I just come on down here to the to the uh, Pharisees. This is all on the scribes in the first part. And then actually I put bookmarks in here, too, so we can come down to the Pharisees directly. There we are. And um, the word Pharisees from Greek by the Aramaic word for separated you know, it's kind of interesting that the average Jew, of course, kept himself separated from a Gentile and expected that there should be a separation, that they were God's chosen people, they were under God's covenant, that they were called out to be separate, to be uh, to be holy for God is holy. And so your average Jew who read the Bible, who understood his stewardship and his responsibility would have a separation between him and Gentiles, so to speak, um, much as you and I would expect to maintain a separation from unbelievers, that we would not be named with them, we would not be caught up in their activities, we would not be uh, defiled by their activities and so forth. Well, the Pharisees took that a step further, that they viewed a separation among their fellow Jews who were non-Pharisees, see, that even they were so defiled by the systems of the world and Greek philosophy and Greek culture and so forth that they would be even more separated than even the Jews were separated. And so it's quite interesting. The name separatist is thought by some to be derived from that separation which took place in the time of Zerubbabel and then again in the time of Ezra when Israel separated from the heathen dwelling in the land from their uncleanness. Now the advantage you have in terms of a Libronics resource as opposed to a, a Word document or a, or a web page is that the uh, the scripture links then become hot linked and so a single click will then allow you to read through the article at the same time that you're looking at the scripture references and you're able to follow along in your study and you can read Ezra 6:21 you can read Ezra 9 
verse 1. You can read Ezra 10 and verse 11. You can go to Nehemiah 9-2. You can go to Nehemiah 10-29. See? And just that quickly, you can read through the scripture references and save yourself a lot of page flipping in terms of, uh, in terms of these things. However, the name probably has a stricter meaning coming to the Pharisees as a result of their extremely strict view of the idea of pollution. Not only from the uncleanness of the heathen, but also from the pollution which they, uh, they thought the majority of Israelites were likewise affected. See, not just from the Gentiles, but even their fellow Jews. They might have been called separatists by some in praise and others in blame. <laughs> but they accepted it. You know, when the term Christian was first applied, it was meant as an insult. They said, oh, you're just little Christs because the, the, the believers there in Antioch were followers of Jesus Christ. And so it was meant as an insult. But the Christians accepted it and said, yes, we are. See, and we've been called Christians ever since. Other uh, information on here. And as I say, you can look this up on your own. And if you don't have Internet access and don't want to uh, or can't find the, the Grace Notes uh document on the uh, the Pharisees. We can print some off and have them available to you. There are other resources available here as well. Again, the advantage of the uh, Logos form rather than simply the Word document is that uh, when Josephus has cited, for example, his Wars of the Jews, uh, again, you can make that a hot link and you can turn right to Josephus and you can read the material there as it as it comes in its context and, and even read more than just simply the the single citation that's referenced in the document. See, there's one uh, statement here about concerning immorality. The, the Pharisees taught that every soul is imperishable, but that only those of the righteous pass into another body, while those of the wicked are punished with eternal torment. And you think, wow, I want to read more about that than just simply this one blurb that's contained in, in this article on, on the Pharisees. So having the link here to Wars of the Jews, then you can take a look at it. Or having a link here to uh, Josephus and his Antiquities of the Jews, likewise, opens up Josephus and allows you to see it in its full context, read more on it and the, uh, on the items there. Also down here, there's, in addition to the Josephus links, of course, more scripture links on the Pharisees when uh, Christ was having conflict with them on the Talmud. Comparison of the Pharisees to Christianity. And and then that's it. It moves on to deal with the Sadducees there. In any event, um, Grace Notes has all that available and you can download it and read it. If, if you don't have access, let me know and I'll print one off for you. Uh, and if you want a copy of this uh, Logos book to put into your Logos software, let me know and I can get that to you as well. And then it just appears in your library along with you know everything else that's in your library. And it just makes it another study tool and an item that uh, that you can use as a resource uh, down the road. All right. Under the second point of study, back to John chapter 3 then. Nicodemus confessed the Pharisees' understanding of Christ's origins. This confession in the very first thing out of his mouth is so telling and remarkable because this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we... All right, not me, not I, or, you know, I kind of been figuring this out, but we, meaning we have been watching you, we have been listening, we have been seeing, and we have been talking about you, and we have been debating, all right, if you, if you understand anything about corporate bodies, whether it's a, 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 
a political body or a religious body or a, a school or a church or a, a neighborhood association or any kind of a, you know, a knitting club. I don't care what it is. And when you're talking about a corporate body of individuals, you're, uh, to come to a consensus takes a bit of time. <laughs> All right. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of back and forth. There's some argument. There's some give and take. All right. But eventually, if in order to come to a consensus, considerable conversation has to take place. And we recognize that this has been happening among the Sanhedrin with respect to Jesus Christ. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, we know, we know, not we think, not we uh, consider, we, we uh, speculate, we um, suspect, we know, all right? After deliberation, after consideration, after examination, after uh, thoroughly putting the facts together, we have come to this conclusion because it's undeniable. You have come from God. You didn't just spring up out of nowhere and invent all this stuff. You are sent from God. They, they understood that. As a teacher, they also recognized that performing miracles was never for its own sake. That he had come, but he had come with a message. He had come with content, with doctrinal teaching. That God never, ever in the history of the Jewish people sent miracle workers just for the sake of doing miracles. See, whether it was the judges who delivered them from the hands of their enemies or the prophets, see, who would even rebuke godless kings and keep people on track and, and so forth. In the history of the, of the dispensation of Israel, miracle workers were never sent simply to do miracles. All right? He, he had come from God as a teacher, with doctrinal content that they were accountable for. If God has delivered the content, they're accountable. All right? It's, it's staggering to a group of people that have basically by this point of time become a Moses cult. All right? And, and to, to, to kind of boil down the Pharisees to Moses cult is maybe a, an oversimplification, but nevertheless it's accurate. That they had so idolized Moses and seated themselves in the chair of Moses, you understand. And so when the Lord says, don't think that I'm the one that rebukes you, Moses is the one that condemns you, that was the harshest thing he ever could have said to these people. Uh, talking about that sword uh, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, when he told them that Moses was the one that condemned them, he couldn't have said anything harsher. All right? And so you realize how significant this is because here they're idolizing Moses. They're, 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 they, would, they view themselves as being the Moseses of their generation. And yet none of them had done a single miracle. Such as Moses had been doing. <laughs> you know, Moses parted the Red Sea. Moses provided food. Moses, I mean, all of the, not only the teaching Moses gave, but the miracles Moses accomplished. Okay? Now here, now they're teachers... But they're not doing any miracles. Here comes Jesus Christ as a teacher, plus he's doing miracles. See? And how convicting must that be? How convicting must that be? Now, as we, as we deal with Nicodemus in this confession, we know 
that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The undeniable fact of the miracles, the undeniable fact of the miracles had led them to this conclusion. And yet, even coming to this conclusion, even knowing that he's from God, Nicodemus is by himself on this night. See? Now, I would suspect, (laughs) here we are on, what is this? February the 23rd, 2005 AD. I would suspect that if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, were to come into the world today, okay, now we know this can't happen because we understand that his next appearance is going to be at the rapture to take us home. But just humor me for the moment. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was to come into this world today as a teacher, as a pastor, and he started teaching Bible class in Austin, all right, I would expect that none of you would be here this morning. <laughs> I would suspect that you would, in your mind, you'd think, okay, uh, Pastor Bob's teaching Bible class at 10 o'clock, um, but you know what? Jesus Christ is over here teaching Bible class. I'm going to skip Austin Bible Church. In fact, I'm going to quit Austin Bible Church. <laughs> I'm going to resign my membership. All right. And I'm going to go over here to listen to Jesus Christ. All right. And I wouldn't blame you. (laughs) In fact, you know, chances are I wouldn't be teaching Bible class at 10 o'clock. Okay. But now stop and consider. We've, we've, We've touched upon this briefly because we've already seen the fact that only a couple of John the Baptist disciples followed after Jesus Christ. The rest of them stuck with John the Baptist. And that, that boggles the mind. Okay? They're going to continue to stick with John the Baptist. Even after he's arrested, he still has disciples. Even after he's beheaded, he still has disciples. Why is that? Why do we follow our personality cults, see, and get wrapped up in the man rather than the message? Well, now, here are these Pharisees, and they have debated, they have discussed, they have concluded. He is sent from God as a teacher, but they didn't go to listen to what he was teaching. They stayed in their system. They stayed in the, with their teachers, with their professors, with their scholars, with their rabbis, with their elders. And only one man had enough positive volition at this point to go and investigate, to ask these questions. And I find that to be most remarkable. Point three. Jesus laid out the only issue that matters to this lost and dying world. With the heavenly credentials established, the heavenly message must be given. You must be born again. Verses 3 and verse 7. The only thing Nicodemus needed to hear at this point was the gospel. Jesus laid out the only issue that matters to this lost and dying world. And there might be folks, and I think the guest speaker we had on Sunday, I was very blessed, very thankful that he was here and simplifying things and not being sidetracked on other issues with respect to what does the unbeliever need? He, needs? he needs Christ. With the heavenly credentials established, the heavenly message must be given. In verse 3, you must be born again. Where it's general, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And just in case Nicodemus missed the point and thought that he was talking about others, or talking about people in general or the worldwide at large, he says, you must be born again. You have only been born once, You have physical life. You're living physical life. Very religious. 
say, but is your religion going to save you? As, as Christ told the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures, you, search, you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's the Scriptures, it's Moses that wrote about me. You've buried yourself in this, in this Moses cult and memorized his writings and you're more knowledgeable, but you don't have Jesus Christ. The only issue that matters to this lost and dying world is Jesus Christ. You must be born again. And apart from rebirth, apart from regeneration, apart from having this life, you can have factual knowledge, but you can never have understanding. You can never have true knowledge, as the Lord is presenting it here. Now, <laughs> this uh, is, a, is a problem. This whole concept of being born again, Nicodemus, looking at it with human viewpoint from the, the perspective of the only life he has, says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? And we don't know how old he is, but he's a ruler of the Jews. He's, in all likelihood, he's a grandfather. In all likelihood, he is one of the elders of his, of his clan. We don't know with a certainty, but it's... Uh, it's uh, natural in this context that uh, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I mean, it just doesn't compute. It's inconceivable that somebody physically alive could be, you know, reinserted back into a womb somewhere and then born a second time. It's just, it doesn't compute. It didn't compute to him 2,000 years ago. It doesn't compute to us today. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. See, you're thinking in physical terms, that which is born of the flesh. I'm teaching in spiritual terms. And you're not, there's no, uh, no comprendo, right? <laughs> He's... He's speaking in spiritual terms. He's thinking in earthly terms. And it's like somebody speaking Spanish and somebody's hearing English and there's just no communication happening. Like when you and I face it in trying to talk about spiritual matters with an unbeliever. How far do we get? Nowhere. The natural mind cannot apprehend these things for they must be spiritually appraised. And we understand that. Point four, the second birth cannot be understood in natural human terms. It is a spiritual action that cannot be physically seen, but it can be felt. It can certainly be felt. I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. The second birth cannot be understood in natural human terms. Verses four through six. It is a spiritual action that cannot be physically seen physically seen but it can certainly be felt and i have to use felt with a little bit of caution because of the, the culture we live in <laughs> the, the generation we live in the tendency among some to plunge into a touchy-feely kind of and i almost i almost um, use feelings as a dirty word anymore because people get confused with the sense of feelings, that it's, it's an emotional approach. People say, well, I feel. Which means I have a certain emotional mindset that reacts to a set of circumstances. So I feel. Okay? Let's, 
differentiate a little bit between emotional feelings okay, and spiritual feelings, where you have legitimate spiritual perception. Okay? And so I think with proper vocabulary, with proper, um, with proper context, we can use a word like feeling or felt, and we can use it appropriately. And where we're not just plunging into some kind of mysticism or we're not plunging into some kind of emotional reactionism. And he uses wind as the illustration. And, and whether you're talking about the Hebrew ruch or the Greek pneuma or the English wind. See, the issue is we have three different words. We have wind, we have spirit, we have breath. Three different words in the English. And it's only one in the Greek and it's only one in the Hebrew for these concepts, all right? You can't see it, but you can feel it. That's the wind, you know? Can you see wind? No, but you can feel it when it hits you. You know, you know, okay, the wind's blowing. You know it's blowing from this direction. You can face this direction. You feel it coming here. When you turn this way, you feel it coming here, you know? But you can't see it. You didn't see it coming from that direction. Didn't see it coming from that direction. But as soon as the wind changed, you were able to feel it coming from a different direction. You couldn't see it coming from a different direction, but you could feel it. Okay? Tangibly feel it with your sense of touch. So it is with the Spirit. You can't observe it with physical observations, but you can discern it through spiritual observations. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It can certainly be felt. When you are redeemed, when you are regenerate, do you know it? Is there a part of you, is there, does your soul recognize that whereas before, on the other side of that dividing asunder was a dead thing, but now on the other side of that dividing asunder is a living spirit? Of course your soul recognizes that. Because the Holy Spirit communicates with your human spirit, testifying that you are now a son of God. And you can know that you're a son of God. Your, your soul identifies with that. Your living spirit identifies with that. You know that you're spiritually alive. In the sense of, Spiritually perceiving or knowing or feeling. Okay? Spiritually perceiving. Some of these things, too, people get all caught up in this that they, um, they try to develop a, uh, kind of a mystical thing. <laughs> with, and they, and they take passages like the eyes of your understanding and they, they develop this. And, and, and the tragic thing of it is, is that this is all demonic. In its methodology, in terms of think about the new age and think about the cults and think about the demonism and think about every uh, false religion out there that tries to go to extrasensory perception and all the things of, of uh, ESP and all the things of, of clairvoyance and seeing visions and all these other things. Is that what we're talking about? No. Because where does faith come from? We walk by faith, not by sight. Ours is a mystic walk, if you want to use such terms. But it is a mystic walk that is grounded in what has been given to us in the living and abiding Word of God. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. That doesn't mean that we 
you know, tap into the universe and we kind of, you know, mystically try to dream about, oh, okay, today I'm supposed to go here and do such and such. No. All right. That's not the walk of faith. That's a walk of of mysticism, quasi demonism. All right. Faith cometh by hearing, which means you are a student, you are a disciple, you're under the authority of the word of God. And hearing by the word of God. All right. Then, if you're in Bible class and the word of God has been taught and you have allowed that word to dwell richly in your heart and you are meditating upon that word day and night and you come to a prayer meeting and you're joining with like-minded believers in lifting up that word and then, on the basis of all that, you find that you have a conviction in your soul. Then you can say, I'm being led by the Spirit of God. I know what God's will is for my life. Okay? And an unbeliever might look at that and say, well, how do you know? And he won't have any understanding that this is a reality that has been laid upon your heart and you know things which I have not seen nor ear have heard. Okay? God has revealed it to you. He has made his will known. Only in the process of the word of God renewing you in the spirit of your mind. The second birth cannot be understood in natural human terms. Okay? And this is where science falls short. This is where all these other things, you know, and I, this morning, there was like a three hour debate on this uh, woman in Florida. Okay? And I know it's been going on and on and on and on and all of this. Okay? But, and, and the doctors, they, they, they line up doctors on both sides, right? And you got these experts on both sides. <laughs> My dad used to say an expert is, well, an X is a has-been and a spurt is a drip under pressure. In any event. Um, <laughs> and some doctors say that she's brain dead and some doctors say, oh, no, she's not. Okay. And they have equipment that can measure electrical activity in the, in the brain. They have equipment that can measure other things. See. But do they have equipment that can tell where her soul is? No. How do you measure a soul? Where's the where's the solo meter? You know, the soul scanning device. Genesis says it came about as her soul departed for she died. Do you know when a person is dead? When the soul is no longer in the body, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. And we have arrogant doctors and prideful humanity that thinks they hold life and death in their hands. Well, guess what? They don't. Jesus Christ holds those keys. See, in all the prideful humanity, and I, I think I make people mad sometimes. <laughs> they say, well, you're not a doctor. You don't have any medical training. Say, well, no, I don't, but I've got, I got 110 nurses in my church or thereabouts. You know, I <laughs> exaggerate a little bit, but God's blessed me with a number of nurses and things. <clears throat> Am I a doctor? Of course not. I have no medical training. But I read the Bible that says when the soul's gone, the body's dead. Absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Okay? Now, have, has humanity developed machines that can keep hearts pumping? Keep a physical body functioning and we say, oh, they're still alive. Because we've artificially kept blood flowing, kept heart pumping, kept electrical activity transpiring in a, in a brain. Can we keep a body alive after the soul has departed? Things to consider. 
And for those who have accurate teaching in the Word of God, for those who understand that a body minus a soul is, a, is, a, is, a, is an empty body or a vacated body, you think a demon could step into there? You say, oh, well, wait a minute, now you're getting sensational. No, I'm just reading the Bible. Demons empty or demons will occupy vacated bodies. Demons will enter into animals. Demons will enter into unbelievers' souls. Demons will enter and possess bodies. See. In any event, all of this just kind of came out of a radio show this morning that made me mad. Um, and I'm not saying what I'm not trying to tell a believer what they need to do in terms of caring for their parents or caring for a loved one and and so forth because. Believers have to make that choice when they're there at that time, see. But the departure of the soul from the body is not in the physical realm to be observed. The physical life and soul life, spiritual life, being redeemed in Christ are entirely separate matters and you cannot deal with them medically Nicodemus here is trying to figure out what the Lord's dealing with, and he's trying to figure it out physically. He's trying to figure out in terms of crawling back into his mother's womb somehow and getting born again. Christ says, that's not what I'm dealing with. It's a spiritual action. cannot be physically seen. It's like the wind. You can feel it. You know it when it hits you. But you can't see it. And we move on into verses 9 through 13. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Again, the unbeliever can have knowledge, but no understanding. They must be spiritually appraised. Satan knows scripture. Does he have understanding? Does he have wisdom? Of course not. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that which we know and testify of that which we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You know, when it comes to all of your schools and all of your training and all of your education... Has anyone actually gone up into heaven to find the real facts and come back down to report (laughs) on these things? Or are you accumulating your earthly knowledge and passing that on in your traditions? See, and Christ is saying, guess what? God has now come down out of heaven to reveal these things. Point five, academic Bible knowledge is not the total answer. Shock of shocks. Heresy in a Bible church. (laughs) Academic Bible knowledge is not the total answer. In terms of, and and you don't throw it out. Don't get me wrong. There are some who would do that. They try to, they go to a mystical thing. Well, God will reveal to me. Okay. You want to study. You want to study, but you've got to study with the spiritual eyes that you have in the rebirth. Academic Bible knowledge is not the total answer. We must humbly accept the heavenly message as it has been given. Academic Bible knowledge. See. Accumulating knowledge, accumulating facts. You know what? If you've got 
the whole law memorized. You can quote for me not only all ten commandments, but all 613 uh, codified commandments of the Mosaic Law. And you can, you can name all, uh, all the tribes. You can name all the apostles. And you have every fact down. You're a walking Bible encyclopedia. But you don't accept the divine authenticity behind it. You don't accept the authority that God's the one who wrote it. And recognize that as God has said it, we are accountable to live it. Then all it is is facts. All it is is knowledge. And you're not living it. You're not submitting to it. It's, it's information, but it's not authority. Okay? In which case, it's, like, it's no, no different than a phone book. It's on the shelf. You refer to it when you need to. Right? You're looking for, uh, you, you need a, you need a, your brakes have gone out on your car. And so you pull out the yellow pages and you flip through and you find, okay, brakes. All right, there it is. Oh, here's one that's not too far away. I can walk there. Okay, great. Call them up. It's there for information, but you don't live your life according to the yellow pages. <laughs> you don't submit to the authority of the yellow pages. It's just there when you need it. It's convenient. You found an answer and you made use of it. You got your brakes fixed. And you close up the yellow pages. You put it back on the shelf. You don't need it again until something else happens. Okay? And that's the academic only approach to the scriptures. You don't, people don't accept it as the authority for their life, that they would submit their life to the authority of scripture. Rather, it's simply there when they need it, see, for a crisis. Uh, I'm, I've got a, a marriage test right now. Oh, my goodness. Well, okay, let's pull out the yellow pages and let's flip through. Okay, find some. Okay, marriage, all right. And, you know, try to find a couple things here. Okay, here's a fix for whatever crisis I'm in in the moment. And then crisis kind of blows over or fades off or whatever. Then, okay, crisis done. Put the yellow pages back on the shelf. Put the Bible back on the shelf. I'll refer it. I'll refer to it the next time my life's in the trash can and I have nowhere. I've tried everything else. Okay, <laughs> you know, it's not the book of last resort. This is what we should be submitting to, the authority of this book on a daily basis. Academic Bible knowledge is not the total answer. We must humbly accept the heavenly message as it has been given. Point six. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the only means by which mankind might receive eternal life by means of grace through faith. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the only means. Met a man yesterday who told me there were many paths to enlightenment. And I thought, well, isn't that something? <laughs> and he talked about different worlds, talked about different realities. Different dimensions of the multiverse and different planets. And it didn't take long and I started to wonder what planet he might have come from. All right. And, you know, it's, it's humorous and at the same time it's tragic. Because he's on the road to hell. And if he stays in that unbelief, that's where he's going to go. Uh, he grew up Catholic and maybe, you know, in childhood somewhere, he got a hold of a gospel, maybe, but um, in any event, 
there is only one way. And the cosmos hates that because that's too authoritative, too absolute. See, how dare you say there's only one way? That's exclusive. That's, that's closed-minded. That's narrow-minded. We're so much wider than that, so much broader than that. We're more sophisticated. We understand. You know, and this fellow yesterday kind of smiled and treated me like, you know, an idiot. And that's fine. Thought that I was, well, he knew I was a pastor. So, you know, he knew that I was closed-minded and that I believed in the Bible and that I, you know, said, well, that's okay. That's good for you. I'm glad you, I'm glad you found peace in, in, in that. Okay. Like, well, isn't that cute? <laughs> anyway. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, are you familiar with this event? Are you familiar with what happened? They're in the wilderness and the serpents have bit them and they're going to drop dead. Are you familiar with this? And there was only one way. There was only one antidote to that venom. Only one way by which they weren't going to drop dead. And only one. It was an exclusive, narrow-minded, uh, you know, absolute, black and white, primitive... <laughs> solution. And there was only one. Okay? A multiculturalist of Moses' day might have said, no, you don't need to look to the bronze serpent and live. There are many paths to getting rid of that poison out of your body. <laughs> okay? We can do this, we can do that. And, you know, looking at the serpent might be okay for you, but somebody else might do something. No. You had to look at that staff to live. Look in any other direction. Was death. See, that's the nature of truth. Truth is always exclusive. Always exclusive. When you when you think about now, I don't even know where. Let's. Um, don't want to go back. Yeah, let's go back to numbers. Might as well. Numbers. Um, where is this? Number sixteen. Where? Okay. Well, here we go. John 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent. Here we go. So I didn't plan. Numbers 21, 9. I didn't plan on going here, so I didn't put it down. All right. Moses made a bronze serpent. Numbers 21. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Interestingly enough, the vocabulary there for fiery serpents with reference to the seraphim, it's the same word in the Hebrew, angelic, these weren't natural snakes. Um, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. Okay. Now this is a, a graphical representation of the reality of what it was that had afflicted them. Okay. There's nothing magical about the pole. The issue is, is are they going to obey the instructions God supplies as a solution to their rebellion? It's the same thing with us in believing on the cross. 
nothing magical about the pole, but it is the issue of are we going to obey the instructions God has supplied for the dealing of the problem of sin? Make a fiery serpent, set it on the standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay. Now, it doesn't say where it was set, but let's just say, you know, the, 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 the standard was set north. Okay. That means if you looked west, you died. If you looked south, you died. If you looked east, you died. If you looked southwest or west by southwest or east by northeast or any other direction, you died. But if you looked north, say, or whatever direction the, the pole was, that was the only way you could look and live. The only way you could look and live. Because truth is always exclusive. The lie is whatever you want it to be. You following? It's as the nature of objective reality. Okay? In terms of any statement of truth. In terms of our hymnals are red. Okay? That's true. Because the color is what it is. And the color is restrictive. But the lie can be anything you want it to be. You can say, the hymnal is blue, the hymnal is green, the hymnal is white, the, hy- the hymnal is purple, the hymnal is rainbow colored. You can, you can, the lie, I mean, we could spend the next hour just making up lies about our hymnal. Okay? And there would never be any end of it because we can keep coming up with more colors. We can go through the whole Crayola box. All right? But truth is always what it is. It's always limited. It's always unique. It's always absolute. It's always one. So rather than say it's illogical for there to be one way to be, to be saved, I say no. It's perfectly logical for there to be only one way to be saved because that's the nature of absolute reality. And then the guy you're debating with from Mars says, well, there are no absolutes. There is no absolute reality. And tries to take you down this thing with an elephant and say, well, three blind men touch an elephant and, and one's touching the, the trunk and one's touching the tail and one's, you know, stop that right away and say, wait a minute, objectively, there's an elephant there. And regardless of who's blind, regardless of what they're touching, the objective elephant is still an elephant. In order for your little stupid story here to work, that has to really, truly be an objective elephant. So let's stop and go back now to the universe and realize what is the true reality objective elephant because that doesn't change no matter how I approach it, how you approach it, or whatever other philosophy you want to dream up. The elephant's still there. Okay? The universe is still there. God is still there regardless of whatever you know, blinders you want to put on and however you want to approach it. Objective reality is objective reality. All right? So, Looking to the serpent and living. It was a one and only way. And now Christ brings this here into its full application in terms of salvation. Because just as the serpent was lifted up, Jesus Christ is lifted up. He will go to the cross and he will die. And this then becomes the fulfillment of what the typology of of that serpent staff was, was portraying. If you want to think of the human race as being dead, and they are, Descendants of Adam, dead in, the, in our transgressions and sin. The wages of sin is death. As in Adam, all die. Okay. Stop and consider the role of the serpent in bringing about the fall of man. Okay. If you want to really 
do a full study on the, the, the typology and the symbolism that's being taught here with this serpent. Okay, But now, what's being lifted up? Jesus Christ is being lifted up. And where is going to be the source of salvation? Jesus Christ. The only way you can turn to, the only thing you can look at, the only thing you can place your trust in is Jesus Christ. And so as we read it here in John chapter 3, as, as, in like manner, even as, in the same way that, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Okay? So how was that? Well, it was lifted up as a source of life to those who were dying. How is Jesus Christ going to be lifted up? As a source of life to those who are dying. Even as. You can't overlook the as. As Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up as a source of life to those who are dying. Okay? But eternal life to those without eternal life, to those without spiritual life. So that, purpose clause, whoever... Whoever. You know, I don't know that there's a more beautiful word anywhere in the Bible than whoever. We have it in verse 15. We have it in verse 16. See, we have it all throughout this passage, all throughout the Bible. Whoever. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. It's whoever. Likewise, it was in the wilderness. Whoever looked at the serpent lived. Whoever didn't, dropped dead right where they were. Okay? And it's a matter of their volition, a matter of their deciding to act upon the promise. Because it was freely there. There was nobody who couldn't have looked at it. Moses set it up so that all Israel could if they wanted to. But some chose not to. Likewise, in terms of Jesus Christ, the offer is made to whoever, whoever believes, will in him have eternal life. It is the only means. And then the explanation in the gospel call. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So, where do we... Who do we give the gospel to? Everybody. Who needs it? We all do. Who receives it? Those that respond by faith to the gospel call. Whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 7. In this gospel message, Christ reveals the Father's gift. The Father's gift. God so loved the world that He gave See, love as a motivational virtue is accompanied by deeds, sacrificial deeds, giving deeds. See, someone who is not giving at heart is not loving, not in the sacrificial sense of love. When you think of selfishness that doesn't give, that's not love. But love, sacrificial integrity, agape love, is giving when Ephesus is rebuked, you've left your first love. He says, go back and do the deeds that you did at first. In other words, regain your motivational virtue of love and the deeds that were then 
expressed because of that love. God loved and he gave. Christ loved and he gave himself. It says, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love and give, love and give. Okay? This is a picture of the Father's gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It's a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a gift. In the Gospel of John, by the way, Jesus Christ is revealing the things of the Father. And in chapter 3, he's revealing the Father's gift. In chapter 2, he revealed, there, there's a number of things that he reveals. The Father's uh, house in chapter 2 when he drives out the money changers. Here is the Father's gift. In chapter 4, it's the Father's worship when he says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John, we have Christ revealing the Father. This is the Father's gift. And who is the gift for? It is for the cosmos. It is for the world. Christ reveals the Father's gift. And obviously in our evangelism, we need to understand that it is a gift and that it's freely offered. But likewise, it must be freely received or it's not a gift. Point eight. Failure to believe results in death as the fallen estate of the natural man. Failure to believe results in death as the fallen estate of the natural man. That's the default condition. Failure to believe results in death as the fallen estate of the natural man. As an Adam, all die. That's not physical death. That's the spiritual death of being spiritually dead. In Christ, all shall be made alive. And that's not physical life. That's spiritual life. See, we get confused because we, we think of resurrection in, in terms of eternal life as being a restored physical life, and yet that body in, the, in resurrection is not a physical body. So why do we get sidetracked by a physical life? It's a spiritual body in the resurrection. It's a soma nuatica in the resurrection. So let's not get confused with physical life and physical death. The punishment upon Adam was spiritual death. The lost estate is spiritual death. Salvation is spiritual life. Failure to believe results in death. Notice verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. It's a done deal. It's already accomplished. Why? Because Adam was judged. The condemnation of the Adamic race was already accomplished. That's your default position when you're born in Adam. You're born condemned. Has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is the default practice. In fact, we have it again down in uh, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides, present active indicative, already in present time, continually abides on him. He was born into that condition. That is the lost estate of fallen humanity. The wrath of God abides on him. Born in Adam, condemned already in spiritual death. Finally, point nine, we wrap this up. Light and darkness are in conflict, even as the saved and the lost are in conflict. Verses 19 through 21. Light and darkness are in conflict. 
This is why you're not to be unequally yoked. This is why there's no concord between light and darkness. Even as the saved and the lost are in conflict. Verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is why the unbeliever finds atheism and agnosticism and so forth to be so attractive. <laughs> because, And I've had people tell me this. You know... Well, your Bible says that, uh, that, you know, my lifestyle is wrong. And I like my lifestyle. See, I like living with my girlfriend. I like all these other things that are going on. And your Bible says that's wrong. <laughs> so what's the answer? Not to accept the Bible that says he's wrong so that he can do what he wants to do. And do what's right in his own eyes. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. And see, this is the blessing we have in the regeneration is that we embrace the light. We want these things to be manifest because we're not the ones doing it. God's doing it in us, through us, for his own glory. What a blessing. What a blessing. All right. This is the message that he had for Nicodemus. And it's interesting in that we have in verse 1, I'll let you go with this, we have, um, or verse 2, he came, but nowhere in here do we have he left. <laughs> All right? We don't know. All we know is that the message ends in verse 21, and then it's after these things. Okay? After these things, Jesus and his disciples. So we don't know. He went away mad. He went away uh, saved. He went away. We, we don't know. All we know is that the next time we see Nicodemus, he's actually testifying on Christ's behalf among the Sanhedrin saying, wait a minute, we're holding a trial here without the condemned party being present to speak for himself. All right. So uh, in any event, we will return to this uh, one week from today, Lord willing, rapture pending, and we will look at this uh, baptism ministry that he has in uh, verses 22 through 36. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the means of salvation and how it is so available to whosoever believes. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.